Hi, and welcome to the Financial Planner Life podcast, where we talk to professionals at varying stages in their career about what it's like working in the wonderful world of financial planning and financial advice. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Recruit UK, a recruitment consultancy specifically focused on the financial services. They also have a niche specialism within financial advice. So check out their website for all the latest blogs, hints, tips, and speak to a consultant if you're looking for a new job opportunity or looking to hire your next superstar. I'm Sam Oakes, and I'm joined today by Cleona Lira, an independent financial advisor from Conscious Money, which is an AR of Two Plan Wealth Management. In this podcast, we talk about her journey so far from moving from Mumbai as a car saleswoman to becoming an IFA seven years ago. I hope you enjoy it. So here we are today, the first ever episode of the Financial Planner Life podcast. And this podcast is all about me meeting people that work within the financial advice industry to understand what it's like, the lifestyle, why you became a financial advisor, and why people should really join the industry. So that's the purpose of the podcast. My background is 11 and a half years of working in the recruitment industry, specifically financial advice. Mm-hmm. And I used to be a trainer also for Aviva, training out financial products such as bonds, pensions and investments and things like that. Don't ask me anything about that because mm-hmm. I don't think I can remember any of it. It was a very dark time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, Cleona, thanks so much for, for coming today and, and choosing to, to, to meet with me. Um, and today what I'd really love to do is just find out a little bit about you, your career, um, what you're doing well, some of the things that you've struggled with perhaps in the past, and just find out a little bit about why you think somebody should also join the industry. And we're going to touch also on the lack of females in financial advice, I think, as well, because that's a really big topic at the moment. Mm. So, Cleona, can you tell me about your career leading up to being a financial advisor? So what were you doing before you made the choice that you wanted to become a financial advisor? Uh, Yeah, I was actually in a job selling cars. That was my first job. I was pretty good at it. And I met someone who moved on from car loans to life insurance. And he got me a job in financial services. I mean, I contacted him and um, asked him if he would give me an interview because I initially got rejected. This was back in Mumbai, a company called ICICI Prudential, which was a venture between ICICI Bank and India, which which was the largest private bank, probably still is, and Prudential of the UK. Yeah. And that started me on a trajectory of financial services. Okay. I it was the first bank assurance team ever in Mumbai. Right. And it was very very exciting. I was in middle management and decided to do an MBA to progress my career. Yeah. And then somehow came to the UK and got back in bank assurance. Right, let's talk about India. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. you were living in India. I was living in India. Whereabouts? Um I'm originally from Goa yeah. in India. But I moved to Mumbai after graduation. So when I was 20, I moved to Mumbai. Okay. And so, yeah, in central Mumbai. Fantastic. So how old were you when you were selling cars in Mumbai then? 20. You are 20? Yeah. Okay. So was that your job then, was it? You were, you were, it was my job, yeah. You were a car salesman. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. So, I mean, financial planning in its own right, there is an element of sales to it, isn't there? Yeah. Um, well, there is. It's a sales job, you know. Um, what did you feel that you learned from selling cars that was transferable across to financial advice 
I learned that I was really good at getting along with clients and getting excited about the product that I was mm. selling. I sold the Honda City, which was an easy car to get excited about. It was the first foreign car in India. Okay. Um, so the car pretty much sold itself. Yeah. Uh, I learned that I had to be really organized and, you know, um, be on time, keep my word, those kind of things. Okay. Okay, good stuff. Selling came very naturally to me. You enjoy it? I enjoy it. What part of it did you enjoy? Uh, the people part. Okay. Yeah, meeting people, learning about them, just being really relaxed around them, giving them what they want, which is the information about the product that would help them to make their decision. Okay, cool. Yeah. So you're working as a car salesman and you... Salesperson, sorry. Salesperson. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Shot myself in the foot already. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, so you're working as a salesperson and you decided that you wanted to move into financial services mm-hmm. and you said somebody was moving into the insurance side. Is that right? Yeah, so there was um, like a, a person who we got car loans from and he mm. worked for, with Bank of America and then he moved to, to an insurance company mm. And I, 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 I was tired of selling. Like, selling cars was great as a first job, but it wasn't where I wanted to be mm-hmm. ending up for the rest of my life. Okay. And so I got two job interviews, one with, I say, a potential and another with a brokerage firm. Mm-hmm. I, I got in with both, and then I decided to go with the insurance company. Prudential. Prudential, okay. yeah. Great stuff. So a worldwide company. Yeah. And is that ICICI Bank? ICICI Bank, yeah. Yeah, okay. I used to do a lot with um, ICICI Bank in the UK when I very first got into recruitment. So Ah, I used to recruit for their UK branches. Right. Um, And we had a lot of people contact us from abroad, as you can imagine, from India that worked for ICICI Bank. Mm. And um, yeah, so I used to deal with a lot of those, uh, you know, a lot of those guys. Mm. Okay, cool. So you decided to join that bank. So how long were you working there for then? I think three years. Three years? Yeah. Okay. So what were you doing when you were working there? I was a manager, a sales manager when I, so I started off as a bank assurance. Yeah. Um, I, I managed a branch yep. quite close to the head office. And so I had to be really careful, like lots of people from management from, yep. would, would pop into my branch, yep. uh, including the CEO, Mrs. Shikha Sharma, a wonderful, wonderful woman yeah. um, who, who led, you know, this insurance company. Okay. And um, yeah. So positive female in financial advice from a very early from a very early age. Yeah. And a so woman, she was the CEO then, was she? She was the CEO. Okay. So she was, was she quite a public figure as well? Was she? Yeah. I, th- I think she had Scotic Bank or um, some other. I, I don't remember what bank she's moved on to, but she's moved on from ICSA Potential now. But she was there for quite a long time. And Okay. Oh, great stuff. So from a, um, so you had a bank assurance background. Was it similar to the bank assurance in the UK then? Was it investments and pensions and protection? Was it tied? How did it work with those guys? Then? Was it just Prudential products? At the time, it was uh, ICICI Prudential products and it was selling life insurance completely differently. Yeah. Not so many endowment-based products with pensions and investments, but more unit-linked plans. Okay. Stuff like that. Okay. Yeah. Was it quite a lot of products off the shelf and you were sort of selling it to a select few type of clients that would walk through the door or were you actually giving full financial planning? Uh, pretty much a few products. A few products. Yeah. Like product sales. Yeah. Yes. A bit like the banks in the UK. Or, a bit like the banks. Or, or product providers. Yes. Quite limited, tied if you like, yeah? Yeah. Okay, cool. Okay, so the difference between India then, selling, well, providing financial advice to the UK was there qualifications required was there you know the equivalent to the FCA there how did it work at the time it was it is regulated Uh, I don't think it's as strongly regulated as the UK Mm. the prudential uh, ICICI prudential gave us quite a lot of trainings 
and it was a very professional environment to work in. We were the first bank assurance team ever, so there was a lot of attention given to, you know, okay. um, given to how we were trained. Okay. Uh, selling uh, in India is probably different now. I don't know what it's like, but my experience was that uh, there, there was quite a lot of pushing and a lot of convincing and a lot of like real hardcore selling and follow-ups and right. you know ins- yeah. I was selling life insurance which isn't the easiest no. thing to it has to be sold it's not yeah. really bought yeah. you know unless it's term term insurance when people you know have a kid or something and then they decide to think about it well insurance is always sold off the back of the fear of something that might happen isn't yeah it? so it's yeah. about putting fear in it's fear-based selling isn't it it is a little bit um, yes when I was at Aviva that was the you know, the concept around it and why people got financial advice, why we had customers. I trained our customer service guys around that, you know. Yeah. So when people were making the claims as well. Um, but yeah, it's like fear-based selling, isn't it? So you weren't, so you weren't pushing like investment products or anything like that as well? Or? Investment-linked uh, insurance products okay. as well, yes. Um, and there were some tax benefits to investing some money in pensions and things like that. I, I remember it was a time when this this was like the ninth, late 90s. Okay. India was just opening up its financial services to mm-hmm. non-state, you know, okay. companies. Yeah. So people were very used to the Life Insurance Company of India, which was the only life insurance uh, company that existed before then. And they were used to guaranteed interest rates. Right. And so the biggest challenge was to convince people to opt out of guaranteed interest rates, yeah. which were very generous paid out by the Life Insurance Company of India, which was the biggest financial services company in India, okay. uh, and, and switched to something that was market-linked, stock market-linked, taking risks. It was, you know, it, okay. it was um, a different pitch. So what about your beginnings in, in, in India then? From humble beginnings, or were you quite, sort of, you come from quite a well-to-do family? How, how was your upbringing around in India? Because there's so much diversity in India. It's yeah. I picture it in my head. I've never been. Yeah. So it'd be interesting to hear your sort of background, really. I was the eldest of three girls, yeah. and my mum was a single parent. Um, I had a dad, but they weren't on good terms, and they split up when I was six. Humble beginnings, because it's quite hard to raise three kids on a school teacher's salary yep. in India. I was very lucky, though. My mum was in education. She was a school teacher. I went to um, English-speaking school. We, we spoke English at home. So there was a certain standard of living, but we weren't, you know, we were, we sometimes didn't get food and, you know, there were, ha- there were hardships. There were hardships. There were hardships. You experiencing the hardship. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It wasn't all roses. It wasn't all roses. Mm. I had to come back from school and sometimes help my mother make pickles and mm. make sausages and cut kilos and kilos of pork. That sounds Because, amazing. yeah, that's what she did to earn extra income. Oh, she was doing it on top of her, off the top of her work as well? On top of her work. And then she also gave tuition. So, you know, she was pretty exhausted most of the time. Was, school, was, was being a school teacher um, a well-paid job then in India? Not really, no. Is it not? No. Is it, is it now? I don't think it's particularly well paid anywhere in the world i think we we could value teachers a lot more than you know how you do yeah yeah okay cool so that's interesting then because financial education is kind of at the core of what you do Mm. as well that i've Mm -hmm. seen on instagram and you know your conscious money blogs and we'll talk about that a bit later um but that then obviously led you to leave india and 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 move to england so let's talk about that because education had a part to play in that as well didn't it yeah, I was trying to get my MBA because mm-hmm. I was in middle level management and that was one way to progress my career. Mm-hmm. 
And you have to remember, India is a very populated country. So to differentiate yourself, education seems to be the ticket. And, you know, you, yeah. you just buy into that when you're there. I'm so glad it's not such a it's, it's not such a big deal in the UK. Experience counts quite a bit. Um, so my best friend found uh, this MBA degree in the UK and she said we could work part time and study full time. Yeah. And it sounded like a good deal to me. Yeah. So I applied for student loan, applied to the university, got in, got my visa and then moved. Oh, cool. What university was that then? Leeds Metropolitan. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes I say Leeds. Mumbai, <laughs> like, like, Mumbai like, to Leeds. Yeah, Mumbai to Leeds, well, yes. That's a bit of a culture a shock, isn't it? Bit of a shock, temperature-wise, yeah, yes. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Crikey. Okay, great. So you ended up in the UK. So, that, mm-hmm. you know, so, so how old were you when you moved to the UK? 27. 27. So you had, yeah. how many years did you have then in financial services whilst you were in India? Probably five, six years. Okay, so yeah. when, so when you were when you were at Prudential in India... You started as a salesperson, mm-hmm. so like an insurance sales, and you said you went all the way up to sales management. Yeah, I was like, I was managing a team of people in bank assurance. In bank assurance. So how many people were you managing? Um, 15. About 15? Yeah. So you'd established yourself quite well in India. So to make that sort of transition from India to the UK, mm-hmm. what was your perception at the time? Because I get approached by a lot of people who live in like South Africa or India that are well qualified, well experienced as you were but want to come to the UK and transfer their skills. What was your perception when you were in India moving to the UK? Did you think you could just transfer those skills straight across or were you just purely focused on on, on your MBA? What was your sort of... I was purely focused on my MBA. I had every intention of coming back to India. Right, okay. And it was just a very temporary thing Okay. in my mind. Okay. Okay, so you started focusing on the MBA. Okay, yeah, cool. Yeah. And what was the MBA in again? Um, um, it was a general MBA, like a business MBA. Business MBA. Yeah. Okay, cool. So you started doing that at 27 years old when you got to the UK. Yeah. And how long did that take you to do? A year. A year. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. And then that MBA ended and you decided to remain in the UK. I decided to remain in the UK. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I was uh, I was married at the time to somebody who was doing his PhD in Bournemouth University. We both decided to come and study in the UK at the okay. same time. Yeah. And so I just got a dependent spouse visa and decided to stick on. Yeah. We were trying to work on our marriage and so it made sense for me too. Yeah. So I moved from Leeds back to Bournemouth. Okay. For cool. a few months. Okay. So at what stage then did you then decide what so so how did you then get into financial advice in the UK? What was your route into financial advice in the UK because I can imagine it was probably relatively difficult yeah while I was a student I worked in Halifax selling insurance home insurance and things like that travel insurance over the phone and so I still had like my feet dipped in financial services when I moved to um, Bournemouth I worked for Household Bank, which is now defunct. It was like a sister concern of um, HSBC Bank. They sold very exorbitant loans. And and I really didn't like it. Like it was selling things that I didn't believe in over the phone to people Mm. that I thought were very vulnerable, you know. And I was terrible at it. And I I started questioning, you know, maybe I'm not a good salesperson because I can't do this. And Mm. I was very stressed out. Anyway. um, That was in a contact center though, wasn't it? That was, yeah, that was like, you know, you know, you know in a bank uh, office, in an office. Right. But, yeah, but through the phones. Okay. Yeah. Was it loans and things? Loans yeah. and things, yeah. I remember, I remember them, yeah. I think, yeah. I, I think I worked for one of the similar sort of companies. They right. were really bad loans, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah, I know you're on a bad, hard, hard job, that. Yeah. 
So I didn't enjoy it and I decided to do something else, which was working for an employee benefits consulting. Mm -hmm. I didn't enjoy that either. Okay. And so after a couple of years, I decided to go back into a bank. Yep. And yeah, start right at the bottom okay. as a trainee financial planning manager with HSBC Bank. I okay. think I applied to a couple of banks and they declined because they couldn't see my yep. work experience. Yep. Um, HSBC well, so gave me a shot. HSBC gave you a shot, mm-hmm. which absolutely was an in- incredible route into to the industry. Yes. And um, I mean, when I started recruiting 11 and a half years ago, we recruited for all the major banks. Mm. You know, the bank assurance of my vice market was the place to to be able to send people. And if we, if you were looking for a route into financial advice, I mean, if you started as a cashier, but you had a, a, a vision of wanting to become a financial advisor, then the training and the development and everything was there in, in, in front of you, mm-hmm. um, which you just don't seem to get these days. So for you, it was a it was a clear route, wasn't it? Yeah. Did you ever try to get into um, financial planning practices like IFAs or wealth management firms? Did, I, you, did you kind of understand that at the time? Or? I had no concept of what was available. Okay. And what was familiar to me was, you know, I I was so stuck in, in that job. I wasn't enjoying it. I knew I wasn't very good at selling employee benefit packages. Yeah. And I had a lot of confidence issues because I had a little hang up about my accent. I was okay. an immigrant. I didn't quite understand the jokes. I didn't quite understand the TV, okay. con- yeah. like TV related conversations in yeah. the UK. It took me a little while to catch up with it. And so, yeah, I felt like completely like a fish out of water. Okay. And so I thought, let me just find a job where, you know, I, I there's some familiarity. Okay. So familiarity being that you've worked and in I the bank before in the past yeah do you think the route into um so let's say for someone someone starting their their journey now they're thinking about becoming a financial advisor um do you think it's worthwhile that somebody cuts their teeth say within a contact center of a bank or perhaps just focuses on one specific area of financial advice uh, or financial services say before embarking on a journey into a financial advice role do you think that's beneficial going through like a, a contact center type training environment if you like hi it's charlie i'm sorry to interrupt you mid-episode but i had an idea and if you've been thinking about it i might just have the answer if you've been sat here thinking I need more support in my career. I don't have access to everything I need to put me on this career trajectory all these guests on the podcast have. I know where you need to go. And you need to click the link in the description, which will take you to the Financial Planner Life Academy. This is the first fully independent academy. You'll have access to all the resources you need for all of your qualifications, plus soft skills training, live Q&As with experts, and a load of career advice in there as well. I won't keep you any longer, so you can get back to the episode, but click that link in the description if I've made you curious. It depends because I don't, selling in a contact center and selling in person is different. Mm. But yeah, anything that gives you some confidence in talking to people and talking about a product and, you know. Because mm. I find it, because for me, I, I used to work for Aviva. Mm-hmm. So I started in Aviva for on in, in the customer service team. So I'd be on the telephone answering calls from people about their mortgage endowment plans or their pension plans and um, with profit bonds and premium bonds, all these different types of bonds that were the Aviva, that were the Aviva products that were sold through the Royal Bank of Scotland. Mm-hmm. So for me, that was kind of like a, my uh, my first 
exposure, if you like, to investments. And we learned about the FTSE and we learned about, you know, what makes up a fund and mm. all those typical types of small things that we had to know that we couldn't give advice on, obviously, because mm. we were customer service agents and people were saying, should I take my money out or not? And we were like, we can't, can't give you that advice. But it was at the time, when I look back on it, a really great way for me to get a good understanding of investments and the industry as a whole. And as I naturally progressed through that into like training and development of, of um, training and development of newbies that came on, you know, I could see how um, it was it was a really good starting point for somebody. So I do think the contact centres within the UK, especially within financial services, can be a great place for new people to, to, to start their journey into financial advice. And interestingly, there's a fair few people that joined when I did that are now chartered financial advisors mm-hmm. so one guy uh, rich mcdaddy um for tilney and he's doing incredibly well you know he mm-hmm. started on the telephone exactly the same thing as i did but he's a chartered financial planner mm-hmm. so i do see that kind of route being quite quite attractive for somebody who's looking for a way into financial advice because that route that you had into hsbc for example isn't there anymore mm. you know there isn't these trainee financial advisor roles in abundance that are out there mm. and you know a lot of the time we have to argue with companies to say look advertise that as a trainee advice role because what you're looking for is a trainee advisor mm. you know? mm-hmm. so did you have your level four qualifications at that point i had no qualifications in the uk nothing okay right there we go that's amazing isn't it so yeah. how, when what what date was that when was this this was October, sorry, October sorry. 2005, 2006, probably, something like that. Yeah, April, yeah. But I'll say, but yeah, so 2006. Sorry, May 2006, something like that. Okay, yeah, okay. Sorry, 2007, actually. 2007, mm-hmm. so not that, not ages ago, but yeah. yeah, it's not that long ago, is it? So no qualifications, so you had to pass your... Well, it was pre-IDR, wasn't it? So Yeah, so I, I got into this bank in Southampton and the branch manager was very not excited to see me because okay. he, he realised that he had somebody, a liability on his hands. I, yeah. couldn't, I couldn't talk to clients. I couldn't answer the phones. I couldn't do anything. And so I, I went into a mad rush to get my qualifications so I could get back on his good side. Yeah. I was in his branch sitting for six months training, you know. So what, say again, so he had a bit of a problem with you, did he? Yeah, because if you if you if a branch takes on a person and they they can't actually sell, they can't actually contribute. produce, they yeah. can't actually contribute, yeah. then you know when you're a competitive branch manager, oh, yeah. you're seen as a bit of a oh, and you know I hadn't proven myself in any capacity. Yeah. So. <laughs> and they are super competitive as well because we are, used to, I used to recruit into the branches as well, yeah. um, HSBC. Yeah. And um, yeah, they are super competitive. The personal bankers as well. Proper sales machines, weren't they? Yes. That's what I mean. It's a great, a great ground to get into financial advice as well. Is mm-hmm. learning to, you know, it's like premier relationship managers as they were and yeah. personal bankers. I mean, it's a great point. Okay, so how long did it take you to get past your exams then? Probably six months. Like I, I really worked hard and, yeah. and got the initial exams and then started producing and he was very happy with me eventually. Okay. So, so what did you pass your, did you, did you go up to level four qualification we doing FPCs or we... Yeah, FPCs, yeah. yeah. So they, they had levels within HSBC, so you could do a, a certain number of exams. So first you did mortgages, yeah. then you passed those, and you did investments, a certain level, and then you did, you know, pensions. And so you just kept adding more and more things and doing okay. ex- internal exams. Okay, so you're at HSBC, and you came as a training advice. So within six months, you got up to the qualifications required for you to give financial advice. Yeah, on yeah. mortgages. On mortgages. Mm-hmm. So you started in the mortgage arena. Yeah. Okay. So when it said trainee financial advisor, it was really a mortgage role. It started. It starts off like that, and then off. you can okay. quickly lose your mortgage role and move on to investments and pensions, which was what I wanted yeah. to do. I wasn't okay. very good at. 
I like I did I did mortgages because I had to, but I was really interested in investments and pensions and okay. that side of things. So how come you were so interested in investments and pensions? Why, why? Um, I've always been interested in the stock markets and how they work and how mm. people can you know make money through investing and that side of things is much more intellectually uh, challenging and and fun to explain to clients than talking about a mortgage. Okay. Uh, I mean, to me, yeah. I know I know a lot of advisors enjoy talking to people about the, uh, about mortgages because it's a, it creates an emotional connection also. Mm-hmm. And it is nice, but I prefer the investment side. Okay. So when you said there about the emotional connection then, so do people get quite emotional around investments then? I oh, think. not about investments. No, about buying a, buying a house they do, I think. Okay. But yeah. around investments, yeah, I, uh, I don't know if they get emotional, but they have... Um, more um, challenges, mm. you know, and fears and uh, irrational behaviours and habits. We all do. I mean, even financial advisors do. Okay. So there's also the unknown, isn't it? I think when people are sitting down, they've got large sums of money and they're passing it over to somebody else, then that's their future potentially, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and um, there is a lot of unknowns. And I think also as well, when it comes around, especially around ethical investments as well, people get concerned and worried where their monies are being invested and what mm-hmm. damage it might well do. Um, you've got quite an interest in ethical investing, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. So what do you, what sort of stuff do you do around ethical investing? Um, so I have a lot of clients who are drawn to me because of my values and because of what I put out there on my social media, on Twitter or, or Instagram or whatever. And, um, so, so maybe 60% of my clients choose to invest ethically. I ask all my clients. Um, and usually the topics that are on people's minds are things like climate change. You know, they don't mm. want to invest in fossil fuels. They don't want to invest in companies that are violating human rights. Um, it's moved on from alcohol and pornography and tobacco. Mm. You know, it's, it's much more intricate now. And it's quite, fun to talk. it's quite fun to talk about ethical investing because you get to talk about what's really juicy for the client, you know, what they well, believe yeah. in and what their values are. A bit passionate, passionate mm-hmm. as well. And you can align their beliefs, I suppose, to their investment. Mm-hmm. If they feel like they are investing in a way that's adding good to the world yeah. and they're making money out of it. I think that's good, isn't it? That's going to make yeah. you feel good. <laughs> and it? I think as an advisor, you have to have your niche. Uh, you have to follow your interests. And I find it interesting. I mean, an, an advisor who doesn't find ethical investing mm. interesting could find a different kind of niche, you know. But Why do, do you think, um, is, when it comes to actually making profits, is ethical investing as profitable as a mixture of unethical and ethical? There aren't any conclusive studies to say that ethical outperforms all the time or non-ethical or mainstream investments outperform ethical investments. But if you have a couple of years where, let's say, extractive industries like oil and gas suffer, then most ethical investors will do better because they don't have investments in those kind of sectors. So it really depends. It's hard to say one way or the other. Although there have been more and more studies saying that there is such such a thing as um, an alpha from investing ethically because more and more companies are moving towards being more environmentally friendly. Okay. So do you find that your clients, as we're talking about the present day here, but we're going to talk about it. Um, do you find that your clients now, currently, do they ask for ethical investments or are they, are you kind of educating them to the benefits of investing ethically? Or do you choose more ethical investment strategy yourself and guide them down that path? How do you present it, I suppose? Yeah, so from the time I started as a financial advisor, I always let clients know that investing ethically was an option. Mm -hmm. 
In the last couple of years, people come to me for ethical investing because of my blog and because it's something that I talk about and write about. And um, yeah. So it's just something of it, you know, you, you put yourself out there as somebody who's interested in ethical investment. Yes. You speak to your clients about it. If you put it out there, it just one thing leads to another and you tend to kind of look at that area. It's and part of your job as a financial advisor is to ask a client, you know, do you want to invest ethically? It's one mm. of the questions on our fact find. So okay. it's a requirement to it ask. It is a requirimental ask, is it? Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. There we go. It's a, requ- it's a requirimental ask. By the FCA, the, the regulator. It's a recent requirement. It hasn't been in place yeah. for all this time, but suddenly in the last year... And what's the answer, usually? Um, some clients are like, what is investing ethically? You know, okay. they don't know that that it's an option. And then when you explain to them, they're like, of course, I'm an ethical investor. Uh, some clients are, no, I would rather just, you know, invest in everything because they know that if they invest ethically, then possibly they're not going to be in um, the S&P 500 index, for example, you mm. know, because you're not invested necessarily in passive funds. And so they say, I, I want to just pay the least amount of fees and I don't care about ethics. So okay. it, yeah, as a financial advisor, I don't see my job as being the moral police and guiding clients into ethical investing. It's just offering them the option of if that's what they want, then I offer it to them. All right, cool. Yeah. All right, great stuff. <laughs> I think probably now more than ever, people are a bit more open and aware to the damage that investing can do um, to communities outside directly their own. So they're a bit more open to it, aren't they? And um, yeah. certainly if I'm choosing any investments, I'd be thinking about what damage my investment is doing to somebody else's life because I don't particularly want somebody to suffer for my gain. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's really cool. And I think some financial advisors, not all, not, well, some financial advisors out there are marketing themselves as purely ethical inv- eth- ethical investments. I mean, is that allowed? Can you actually just say that I am an ethical investor and that's all I do? Or is that bad advice how does that sit because i had this conversation with somebody in the pub and i was like why don't you just set yourself up as like an ethical investor and all you do is ethical investments Mm -hmm. and i wasn't sure whether or not that's the right thing to do does that make sense yeah i guess well you always well if if all you do is ethical investing and then you then you don't attract clients that don't want to invest ethically I suppose, and that's so you're perfectly fine. Yeah, you're so picking okay your niche. To do it. It's not yeah. like you know, like alienating anybody or is FCA rules around it or anything along I those mean, lines. I mean, there's so many advisors that are out there that people can turn to if they want to invest non-ethically. Also, I do both. I do ethical yeah. and non-ethical. But okay. Yeah. So you make the option available to them. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose that's a great way of um, establishing your niche, really, isn't mm-hmm. it? Your niche audience, and we'll talk about that in a bit about branding and personal branding and trying to find your tribe, really. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to, because obviously you joined HSBC as a trainee, you had that lovely opportunity to, to step across. I mean, you're an immigrant coming from, uh, you know, from India, joined from India, started at the bottom in the UK after being a sales manager, mm-hmm. became a mortgage advisor, didn't quite enjoy that as much for HSBC. Where did you then go from there? Did you become a financial advisor for HSBC or did you step yeah. outside? I stayed with HSBC for six and a half years. Yeah. I moved from Southampton, where I was based, to Canary Wharf. Yeah. And it was a great place to cut my teeth because I worked with a lot of people in finance yeah. uh, that were very stressed out, mostly like investment banker types yeah. with big bonuses in those days. Okay, yeah. Lovely. And yeah, uh, I, I just kept getting promotions and kept doing my exams and kept moving on and eventually became chartered with HSBC. Oh, great stuff. So how long did it take you from joining HSBC to becoming chartered? 
I think it was two and a half or three years. Okay. I had an MBA degree, and so you get credits if you've done a master's degree, a certain amount of credits, so things were quicker for me. It was because, quicker. Yeah. Okay. How did you find the exams? Did you find them difficult? Or? Difficult because it's hard to study and work, and okay. you know your brains get rustier. <laughs> it is really a thing. How old were you when you passed your your charters? Uh, I must have been like 32, 33. Okay, yeah. so a good age as well yeah. to be chartered. Yeah. Female, chartered female financial planners. And I suspect there probably wasn't a great deal of chartered female advisor, advisors out there at that time. Probably not, but there were quite a few within HSBC because the bank had quite a, a strong uh, push towards you know getting all your qualifications. Yeah. And so. Well, that's it. And I've, um, one of my guests later on actually explained to me that when he joined as a cashier, they recognised him and what he was about and could see that he could be probably a good financial advisor. And they literally took him off the job to focus 100% of his time on passing his exams. Right. And he really struggled by the signs of it. Uh-huh. Um, but he just, it's just unheard of now. Just, just kind of, there's no opportunity really that I ever see that would allow someone to have that sort of training. Yeah. And I think the I think with the banks it was a great training ground for financial advisors. It yeah. did. You know, they, they, they hired a lot of people and they and they put them through their qualifications and um I think without as many in the bank insurance market now it's um it's damaging the effect of how many advisors come into the industry. Mm. I mean we saw that when the you know when RDR happened and the bank kicked the kicked the advisors out. You either sank a lot of them either sank or swim. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of them aged out of the market, a lot of them didn't want to do their exams. Mm. But um, you know, some of them went off and became self employed advisors. But there was then a definite lack of new blood coming into the industry. Mm. You just didn't really see it. Um, okay, cool. So HSBC, Chartered Financial Planner. And there we are. So you were at HSBC as a Chartered Financial Planner and you were advising investment bankers, all these high rollers. Did, did you? Where were you in your league tables then? Because that was always a big thing at HSBC. Were you quite high up? Yeah, I was pretty much second, third or first. Were you? Yeah. What, in the whole country? Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. So what's Among financial planning managers, you know, among among FBMs, we, they called us. We were FBMs, like, yeah. Yeah. So what were you writing in respect of business per year then? I can't remember, but uh, one quarter I wrote like 90,000 in three months. Wow. In the first quarters, which yeah. was my whole year's target. Yeah, that's amazing. But it, we, I was also in Canary Wharf in a very competitive branch and yeah. everyone there, you know, was at their A game. Yeah. So I... I Worked pretty hard. Was it competitive with the people that you were working with in the branch? Did they have more than one financial planning manager in that branch? They did, yes. Yeah, so it was, so you guys were kind of gunning for the, 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 the client as they walked through the door. There was sort of an understanding, but okay. uh, they would often pick the one that was faster at closing business. Okay. Yeah. Was there a limit on the amount of advice that you could actually give before you passed over to somebody else? Or? There was a limit, yes. How much yeah. is that, do you I think I can't. I think it might have been 100,000. Because they've got what they call now like premier relationship managers now mm. that deal with like the million pound type clients. Were you dealing with those types? Or no. Just- so back in the day, the FPMs would deal with like more of the smaller wealth clients. And then you have the I, that you had the IFAs. I think they were called premier IFAs or something. And they, they dealt with like the bigger stuff. All right, cool. Okay. So you're at HSBC Chartered. You're a top of your game. You're doing mm-hmm. really well. You were pretty much number one in the UK, which is pretty amazing. Or two or three, yeah. Two or three, so, yeah, okay. Yeah. So around the top three. Yeah. Um, so what, what did you, how long did you remain at HSBC for then? Six years, six and a half years in total. Okay. Yeah. And then you decided to move on? I decided to move on, yeah. Where did you, what, what was that, what was the reason for that? I took a sabbatical. HSBC allows you to take a sabbatical if you work with them for five years. Yeah. Um, I was getting very disillusioned with product selling. 
I think at some point when you work in the same career, you mature as yep. a person. And I couldn't offer my clients what they really wanted. I was product pushing and I was disillusioned with that. Also, HSBC was going through some internal changes themselves with FCA regulations and they were combining the financial advisor role with the premier relationship manager yeah, role. That's right, yeah. And I didn't want to talk about credit cards no. or loans or any of that. I was very interested only in talking about investments. Yeah. And so... Um, and increasingly, we were being managed by Excel spreadsheets and things like that. Mm. So um, the manager that I liked, that turned his nose at me when I walked in on my first day, he yeah. was no longer my manager. Right. He okay. had actually moved to Canary Wharf as well. And so, yeah, so there were like multiple reasons why I decided, okay, that's it. I've, got to, I've just got to figure out how to find my own business and work for myself. Okay. So you had that thought process in your head. Yes. At that stage, it was about working for yourself as opposed to going to work for somebody else. Yes. Okay. And I didn't think that I would become an IFA. Stupidly, I tried Avon and I tried, like, I tried, I thought, what can I do to work for myself? How can I bring in income? It never came to me that I could set up as an independent financial advisor. Really? Yeah. So you weren't approached by recruitment consultants or other companies like St. James's Place, for example, we, you know, I used to have coffee with someone from St. James's Place every <laughs> month. <laughs> yeah, but I, I honestly didn't think that it was a possibility for me. I think, you know, it, it takes a certain level of confidence. And it took me a little while to embody even the idea that I could be an independent financial advisor. Okay. Because right. it, it, sounded, it, um, it sounded like something that was very far away from me and I was a financial planning manager. You know, IFAs were considered like another level up, like gods when, from where I was. Yeah. So I was like, am I going to be able to do that? It sounds very complex. It sounds so, very hard. So there was an element of prestige attached to to being an IFA mm-hmm. and you felt like you were a bank assurance. It was nothing. You, yeah. You couldn't do it. Yeah. A strange, well, it's not strange. I can understand exactly why you might think like that. I spoke to lots of people from the banks that, you know, you try and convince them that, the world of being a financial advisor is outside of a bank is, is the best place. Um, mm. But I can understand that. And um, But you were chartered. You, you, you were top of your game, um, you know. And So there was a, a bit of a limited belief, I guess. Yeah. So you even went off to try something completely different because you wanted to work for yourself. But Yeah. So what, okay, so that's interesting because I wonder how many people out there now are in that same position. Do mm. they fully understand the transition of what it takes to be a bank assurance advisor or working for a product provider, for example, stepping into the world of financial advice as an independent financial advisor. Mm. So let's talk about that. What did you do to get the confidence to move into the IFA world? There was a big fear that if I don't have a job to motivate me mm. and to go to work nine to five or whatever, you know, will I, will I wake up and do the work needed? Will, will I have the, that f- same fire in my belly, you know, with yeah. all the freedom? There was that fear. Yeah. Um, being an independent financial advisor, wasn't, it wasn't so easy. I mean, I had support. My, I have a very supportive husband. Mm-hmm. I set aside some savings for the first year. Yeah. I knew the first year would be very difficult okay. to get clients to start trusting you and to start placing money with you when you have not much of a... You know, yeah. not many reviews or anything to talk about. Starting from scratch, basically. Starting from scratch. Yeah. And you also, it's a massive learning curve because mm. even though I worked in the bank and I had a lot of experience, I had no idea what an independent financial advisor actually did. Mm-hmm. So I had to learn like research tools and things like that. Okay, cool. Okay, cool. So um, you were 
So when you left the bank, obviously you're leaving behind. Because when you say independent financial advisor, at that point in your head, were you thinking, by leaving bank assurance, I'm going to have to be self-employed? Mm. Was that your mindset? That was pretty much my mindset. Was that your mindset because that was the only options that were out there at the time, was either be employed by, say, a bank or be self-employed? I just didn't want to work for anyone anymore. Okay, so you had that in your mind. I had that. I just didn't want to work for anybody else yes. anymore. Okay, so why was that? I'm quite, quite intrigued as to understand why you don't want to work for anybody else. Even when I worked in HSBC or when I worked in car sales in my first job in Mumbai, I had very much this idea that I work for myself. Mm. And I, I used to achieve my targets and I hated being told what to do and being controlled and things like that. Um, so... That's why it was It was very clear to me. Okay, so it was a, it didn't particularly like somebody planning out your week or telling you what you should be doing or did it take away the freedom of you feeling like you're living the life that you, went, you, wanted, to, you, you wanted to live? I suppose when you do a job, you know, you, like, there are certain things that aggra- aggravate you but you have to put up with it because yeah. that's what a job is. Yep. Uh, unproductive meetings, sitting and listening to drivel and mm. things like that, you yep. know? I was just done with all that. I just didn't want to... Wasn't matching the lifestyle that you wanted to leave probably as well, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I can understand that. I didn't particularly like working for Aviva. Right. You know, like the red tape and everything that I wanted to do, how I wanted to present myself in the training meetings. I had to speak to technical 10 million times. It was just like, it just stifled my creativity. Mm. And however hard I wanted to work, it made no difference to how much I could earn. So you felt like a bit of a cog in a wheel, a bit of a machine as well. You know. Yeah, I, I mean, I was very grateful to the bank for giving me so many opportunities to mm. learn. And yeah, But I think there comes a point in your life when you outgrow it and you become really good at what you do and you have to go and figure out what's the next level of growth. And for me, the next level of growth was working for myself. Working for yourself. Mm-hmm. And you didn't even think about being an IFA. So then obviously you did. How did that come about? How did you think about, okay, well, I'll step into an IFA world? So I started talking to colleagues and saying, you know, I was disillusioned and I was looking at options and then they they encouraged me. So at the bank, a couple of um, financial advisor colleagues said, I had another financial advisor colleague that was looking at being a school teacher. And so we were both sort of carving out our escape routes at the same time and encouraging each other. Yeah. And then i yeah, then I talked to different financial advisory firms yep. and they seemed open to take me on. So that was encouraging. They yep. didn't say, no, you don't have the experience as an IFA. So that so, gave me a little push. Okay. They gave you a little push. Okay, great stuff. So um, what were the, okay, so let's talk about that then. Moving from an employed perspective, sorry, moving from an employed position yeah. into self-employed mm-hmm. as an IFA, what was the first year like? Very lonely. Okay. Uh, I watched a lot of Netflix. Did you? <laughs> yeah. I watched the good, the good wife. You know, okay. on my couch for many days. Yeah. I was not always motivated. Okay. Took me a lot of. Uh, it took a lot of courage to make phone calls to clients, and okay. you know, like all the confidence that I had when I was in the bank. Yeah. I had to. I had real issues with doing simple tasks mm-hmm. in the first year, but as. Uh, more and more clients signed up with me. I grew in my confidence. Okay. You know, but yeah. I I knew that the first year would be hard, would be lonely. I would be, you know, I was used to working in a very social environment with lots of people around me, going out for drinks after work or whatever. And there was just me at home. I didn't even have an office then. So it was no. 
I was quite needy when my husband came home. I bet, yeah, I bet you were. Yeah. <laughs> I bet he was like, get off the sofa. Yeah. So what did, so who did you join then? Who did you, did you go, you, you say so you left the bank. You didn't go and set up your own company and become a directly authorised financial advice practice. No. I assume you joined a network or a, a company as a registered individual. Yeah. So who was that you joined? So I made a little bit of a mistake. I joined a really lovely firm, a small financial planning firm in Deal in Kent. Okay. Um, but the mistake I made was I picked a firm that wasn't very high technology. Okay. At the time, they were using Microsoft Word and they were, you know, it was very sort of old school uh, financial planning practices. Okay. While I worked in HSBC, we used to use a laptop, like a like I used to input my fact find and talk to the client at the same time. And yeah. everything was live, you know, really like Slick. efficient. Yeah. yeah, efficiency and competency are very important to me. And I just almost had a breakdown after six months. I like cried and sobbed and said, I'm really sorry. I I need to opt out of this place. Okay. And they were very kind and let me go. Okay. So it just literally got to a point where you think, I just can't do this. So were you working in their office or were you working purely from home? or was it I was working from both? home and I would go to deal um, every two weeks for some training and, you know, yeah. and they would help me out on my first few cases and... What's your perception about them before you, it's not, not here to bash your old employer, but it happens a lot. So people will leave a bank or they'll leave an employer, go and join somebody else. And it's just not what they expected it to be. Mm. Was the, Did you feel that the proposition, the, the, the company you're going into oversold it or promised too much? Or was it just... Well, you know, why did you choose them? There must have been some reason. There must have been lots of people sort of saying, come and join me. But why did you choose them and over? I don't think I looked at too many options. And okay. I think I was so keen to get out of HSBC and I needed to have something in place before I left. And they fast tracked the process. And okay. I didn't, I don't think I really Look. saw how difficult it would be to do a, a word fact find and how soul crushing it would be to write suitability letters that were just long and, you know. Okay. So stepping into that, that initial stepping away from bank insurance, security of a job, uh, salary, everything like that, into the self-employed world, what advice would you give to somebody who's at that stage now thinking, do you know what, I can do this myself? Meet various different firms and in that process work out what is important to you. So mm. for me, I worked out that technology was very important. I need like a modern setup. I, I had to upload things through the internet, you know. Yeah. I mean, that's probably all sort of standard now. Um, and I needed like a non-interference approach, not somebody who's trying to give me targets because what's, you know, you're yeah. self-employed for a reason. You don't want someone breathing down your neck. No. And for me, it was very important to be a true independent financial advisor, which means that if I decided to offer an ethical portfolio to my client that I wasn't told, oh, no, you have to pick this particular product and this particular model. OK. So yeah. those were the kind of things that were important to me. Those are the things that were important mm -hmm. to you. OK, cool. So the advice of somebody at this position might well be in that same position that you were is just take a good look at the market, review the different companies, but perhaps look underneath the bonnet a little bit and yeah. find out what their systems and processes are really like. Yes. And perhaps create a comparison table. Don't just go along to the same the first company that perhaps rolls out the red carpet to, yeah. you know, have a good look and look around. And, you know, that's very much the advice that, that we give and the idea for yeah. recruitment companies that we should know the market really that matches what somebody's expectations are and what, they, what they're looking for, what they need. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good thing. Write down what it is that you want 
out of your next job. That's yeah. what I always say to people. Don't come to me saying you want a job. Come to me say, telling me what it is you want. Yeah. And I would happily find you something that you want. And mm-hmm. I'd much rather do that than present you with a load of options that are going, they're going to be wrong for you. Yeah. You know? And ask to attend their member meetings okay. to get the vibe. Ask to meet a couple of financial advisors. That's ask to have a look at the systems and yeah. see, you know, what, like, like talk to people offline, hmm. not when you're, whoever's hiring you is in the room, but, you know, yeah. I think that's important. Yeah, no, that's some good advice. I like that. Great stuff. So then that wasn't right for you, that company. And then you moved on to... Two Plan. Two Plan. Yeah. Great stuff. And this is where I met you. Yeah. Yeah. We did an article <laughs> yes. about, uh, well, about you really, wasn't it? And about yeah. reasons why you joined Two Plan. Mm-hmm. So um, tell us a little bit about, you know, why you joined Two Plan then. I found their approach of a pretty um, modern, and, yeah. you know, efficient setup, a nice tablet uh, to uh, a laptop, light laptop to work with. Uh, they're very good on compliance. Mm-hmm. They have very few, I think, maybe only two complaints in the last 10 years that were upheld, which is one of the things as a financial advisor is you want to work with a company that's, that's really taking care of their clients yeah. and taking care of you. That's your longevity as an advisor. Yeah. And so those are the things that stood out for me. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so that looking after you, looking after the clients, a good track record. Yeah. Obviously, they're independent as well. Yeah. Um, and you joined them as a, a as a registered individual. Mm-hmm. So instead of you thinking, I'm going to go set up my own business, joining someone like Tupan is going to look after all the compliance side. You know, they've got the systems in place and the technology in place, some of the best I've seen, actually, which, mm-hmm. is, which is definitely which is definitely a bonus and it makes your life and your job a lot easier, doesn't it? Yeah. And, you know, when they have their member meetings, there's a lot of banter. Advisors can be a yeah. cheeky bunch. Yeah. They they take it on the chin, you know, okay. the management team. They're pretty approachable. You yeah. can say, I don't like this and they, they will listen. So that's quite important, I think, in the culture of uh, member meetings. I have been to member meetings where the person, one person just talks at you and there's there's no productive use of time. And at Two Plan, they value efficiency. They're really like, you know. What's interesting to me is that they're leads based and your first place that you, you went to was Leeds, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So perhaps you just like the Yorkshireman. Yeah, perhaps, yeah. Perhaps, yeah. A, they do definitely have a different way up north. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you felt at home, perhaps. Yeah. Oh, that's really good. That's really good to hear. And how, how has it been since joining Two Plan? How, so so you've, you've gone through that stressful stage of being in bank assurance, going to the wrong company, and you're not alone on that front. So many people do that when they, they mm-hmm. leave an employed role. It usually mm-hmm. takes a couple of, chance, couple, of, couple of attempts to find the right home. Right. You've now set yourself up under Two Plan. How long have you been there for? Uh, I think this is my sixth deal. Sixth year? Mm-hmm. Okay, so it must be working for you then. Yeah. Okay, great stuff. So just tell me about what's happened over these last six years. So the journey from setting up your own business to, to, to now, what's, you know, talk to me about like, what were the biggest challenges that you came up against? Learning the systems, right. learning how to write suitability letters, yeah. which for the first six months, they checked everything and they were very, you know, they were very patient with all the mistakes I made uh, so that things went to the client without mistakes, you know, they would check prior. Uh, the biggest challenge, I would say, is finding my niche, mm. uh, creating, you know, who I am as a financial advisor, creating my brand, and putting myself out there. That That's, yeah. That's it. Okay, well, let's talk about branding then, because I mm-hmm. think branding is very important, especially now, more so than ever, with social media and getting yourself seen and standing out in the noise of marketing and mm-hmm. social media. Because um, you've set yourself up under Two Plan as an AR firm, yeah. so you've got your own brand, and that brand is called Conscious Money. Mm-hmm. So, just talk to me about 
how, you know, how important is branding to you? It's very important because I walked into an industry where there are many established financial advisors. I know there's like these mm. jokes about the typical IFA being 55 and mm. white and male. And so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I'm quite different to, yeah. to that uh, demographic. Also, I walked into the industry and realized that all um, accountants and, you know, people who would refer leads to me were taken. They were like, oh, no, I've already got an established financial advisor relationship. Yeah. So... I was like, well, how am I, how am I going to find clients besides, you know, being on directories like Voucher or Unbiased or um, the Ethical Investment Association? How else can I create demand where people can come to me instead of me, you know, it's, I mean, it's, you, you can't really just walk up to clients and say, can I help you manage your money? Yeah. They have to, they have to walk into your door. Yeah. And so... I I started I went to a BNI networking meeting for the first couple of years of starting my business, okay, yeah. which wasn't helpful at all in getting clients, but helped me in having a support network of people who are also in established businesses. Yeah, okay. And one of the um, ladies there who was in marketing told me to set up my website, so I did that. And um, I started like a newsletter, mm-hmm. and um, a, a couple of years in, into my business, one of my clients, who also is very good at marketing, said, I've signed up to your newsletter, and I haven't received a single one for six months. What are you doing? Right. And then she started coaching me. So I said, oh, I, you know, there's too many emails, and there's da-da-da, and I had so many fears about sending an, yep. an, a newsletter. And so she just spent, she, she was actually going through a redundancy, so she had time to yep. give me. And she just spent time coaching me and saying, you are serving people mm-hmm. by making yourself avail- like by making yourself known. Mm-hmm. You're not imposing on them. If mm-hmm. they don't want your newsletter, they'll unsubscribe. Correct. Yeah. Put yourself out there. Mm. Why aren't you on Instagram? I was like, I don't even know what Instagram is. <laughs> Why aren't you on Twitter? You're not tweeting anything. Yeah. So, you know, you, you need to have your voice, connect with people in your industry. And so... I did what she said. That was the route that came. Okay, so it took somebody in marketing to sort of turn around to you to get you to recognize the importance of personal brand Mm -hmm. and the importance of getting your message out there. Yeah. So she was a client of yours as well. She was a client of mine. So she wanted to to hear from you. Yes. She wanted to hear from you. you She was, why why am am I not getting any emails when I'm signing up to... And she believed in me and being a woman, she wanted to encourage a woman in business and she's... You know, so it, it was also very important for her to encourage me and support me. And, and to share and mentor and, and give you some support in, in, in the area that you're, you're not perhaps strong in. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think personal branding at the moment is, well, it's a, it is massively on point. You know, it's, it's something that, especially within the financial advice industry, I think is not being utilized well enough by financial advisors. Mm. Um, a lot of the marketing is very old. Um, a lot of the marketing is very stiff. It doesn't really show a personality, I find. Uh, it doesn't connect with an audience, I don't believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think personal brand is all about getting your personality across and helping your clients understand a little bit more about you that isn't just, I make you money. You know, It is a little bit about your personality as well, why you do it, how you do things, what money means to you, what money, you know, what your future might mean. So it's a bit of piece around financial education as well, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And um, it's interesting that you popped yourself on Instagram um, because not many financial advisors use Instagram. And I think this is a really great platform to showcase who you are 
So why did you pick Instagram out of interest when you started using it? Because what are your preferred platforms that you'll use now you've established yourself as a bit of a brand? I use Facebook, okay. but it's mostly my friends and family that follow me. Okay, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, I like the visuals of Instagram. Yeah. And it's an authentic place to get your message across. You know, people are very real on Instagram. Yeah. They're not like on Facebook. You can be quite contrived and, you know, yeah. people put pictures of themselves to make themselves look a certain way. Yeah. I'm sure that happens on Instagram too, but I find it much more of a real platform. And yeah, it's visual. It's visual and yeah. I don't particularly care to find clients on Instagram. Okay, yeah. What I know is that when a client comes to my website and they want to have a quick look at what I'm about, yeah. they can go and flick through my Instagram um profile yeah. and they get a pretty good idea of you know oh this person is for me or no this person is not for me can i connect with this person yeah like i yeah. put things about plants my allotment books i read non-violent communication so yeah. it's all out there so then you know they, they get they get the vibe they can be interested in you yeah okay well i must admit when i follow your instagram page i you, you come across as interesting there mm-hmm. are certain things like the med- meditation and the certain books that you read um, the spiritual belief you know it's very interesting to me so i connect with you and if i'm thinking i want to speak to a financial advisor i'm going to speak to cleona because she's, yeah. she's on my page yeah so for me it's, it's it definitely works yeah you know it, it mm-hmm. certainly does work um and i just think um it's, a, it's an area where financial advisors are falling a bit short on. You've got your Martin Bamfords out there at the moment, your Phil Brays that are setting up their marketing agencies to help financial advice practices stand yeah. out in, in the noise and change their image. And I think that changing of personal brand as well and changing of image will also attract more people to the industry because when you do a Google search, and I do a lot of Google search on financial advice companies, a lot of them look really boring. Mm. you know. And I think we just need to bring them, alive, bring them to life a little bit. Mm-hmm. My advice to any financial advisor is to invest in your, invest in your personal brand Mm-hmm. And, and get seen and and it's not a marketing's not a quick process it's a um it's a long game mm-hmm. you know you've got to build your audiences it could mm-hmm. be a could be your mum and mum and dad following you you know week one but by by the end of the year you might have 200 people following you that will also buy your services mm-hmm. and that creates that connection doesn't it yeah yeah because your page as well on your website is all about you and um it's very personable and talking about your um what do you call it when you your plants what was that so you, you're really into plants, aren't you? Yeah. What's the term for that? What's the gardening? <laughs> I thought there was a different sort of like permaculture. That was it. What was it? Yeah. It's it's um it's a way of honouring nature and nature's rhythms when you plant things yeah. and you know like like uh, yeah like like being careful with nature's resources. Which means that it shows that you care about the planet, which oh, yeah. connects you to ethical investing, yeah. which makes me feel quite comfortable. Mm. So you can see straight away how that builds a connection. Yeah. And I think that's what it's all about, that lovely connection. Yeah. All right, great stuff. So let's, you know, let's talk a little bit about, you're a woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a man. <laughs> yeah. So, um, women in financial advice. There's a quite a big, sub- big subject at the moment. I put an article out recently about, you know, there should be more women in financial advice and what can we do about it? And it got a lot of a lot of likes, a lot of shares, um, and a lot of messages sent to me. Mm-hmm. What do you think? First off, I want to ask you, as a woman in financial advice, you know, is it a great career for a female? Absolutely. Yeah? Yeah. So what does it offer? What, you know, why is it suited to a female, for instance? You, especially if you have a family, you can cover the hours you want to work. You okay. have a lot of choice in when you do meetings. Yeah. You have choice about the kind of clients that you take. Yeah. So, 
Yeah. So there's a lot around, say, flexibility of time. So I suppose that matters when you're in a in uh, in a role where you're uh, self-employed, for instance. Mm-hmm. Not so much so if you're employed, because mm-hmm. one of the biggest bugbearers or the biggest um, requests, one of the biggest um, pieces of advice that came back from financial advisors about how you can attract more people to the industry was companies need to be more flexible around time. Mm. So you've, let's say for, you've got a lot of females that are working in power planning roles, administration roles, support roles. They tend to be drawn towards those types of positions anyway as an entry point. Mm. But there's a lot of financial advisors saying that you know flexibility needs to be there from an employed perspective. If I need to be able to pick my children up or I've got family commitments, then flexi work hours need to be there and that's yeah. quite a big thing we brought it in, in our office and you know it does work you know it's a bit, it takes a little while to get used to the trust side of it but it does work and it makes mm-hmm. life people's lives easier and i think that's one of the biggest requests of how we can attract more females to financial advice what what do you think we what do you think the industry could do to attract more females to financial advice have you got any thoughts on that i think the industry could be more inclusive about diversity in general mm. financial services is very white dominated yeah. And you know, um I don't I don't have any clear answers no, as to no. what we can do. No. But I think uh giving people more opportunities, you know, to qualify I don't know, to I, I really don't have the answers. No, you haven't got the answer. Yeah. No, no sort of th- yeah. I think this is um something that I'm gonna be coming across quite a lot on the podcast really. I'm just pretty interested to to understand it, I guess. And Yeah, I guess the the main message is uh that that I would like to put out to women potentially looking to be financial advisors is there is nothing intimidating about money or financial advice okay. that is easier for men to do yeah. that women can't do. Okay. There's really nothing intimidating about it. In fact, my personal belief is that women are better at listening to their clients. Yeah. They're, in fact, much more naturally empathic yeah. and probably understand money and are, are better at managing money, you know, spending yeah. money. And so we can relate better to like like my a lot of women clients come to me as a female financial advisor because they specifically want to look for a female. Mm. I, I also work with men. I'm not uh, discriminatory in any way. I like sure. both genders, but um, they their experiences that they are sometimes they feel patronized when yeah. a man speaks to them. Mm-hmm. And so I think women are you know very well suited to the profession. Mm. And there is this um, misunderstanding that you have to be good at maths to be a good financial advisor. And that's rubbish. You don't have to be good at maths. Excel spreadsheets and formulas are wonderful. And yeah, there's there's basic financial numeracy that you need that that everyone needs, but nothing extraordinary you know so most of the most of the tools that you need to be able to do a, you know a clear cash flow modeling or financial plan is their tools aren't they their it's tools about, it's about losing, you know learning the tools and yeah. to not be intimidated by not being a an amazing mathematician you know yeah. if you didn't you know it's not all about that because there's a calculator going out there you know you can do it that way um yeah i get that okay and saying like sort of empathy is so if women tend to tend to be more empathetic i'm not saying that women are more empathetic but they do tend to be more empathetic and i think what you're saying in respect of working as a financial advisor that lends itself well to situations where you're talking about things that can be quite emotional you know someone dying perhaps or the thought of somebody dying and how you're going to protect your life and um things like marriages as well i think when people go through divorces women i can imagine don't really feel comfortable speaking to a man if they've been mis- 
treated by a man perhaps Mm -hmm. and they would rather build a relationship with a female and I think with the rise of more female millionaires and I think they're going to overtake I think it's by 2030 or something they reckon more female millionaires than male oh and also the wealth is going to be passed down to more females then there's an opportunity there for more women with money to need financial advice Mm -hmm. and um and I think it's that inclusivity as well, isn't it? We were talking about, you know, it's like about, it's, we just need more women in the advice industry for situations like that. And um, it's looking at ways that we can do it. And I think, yeah, I think no one's really got the answer. I think I'm going to, it's a question I'm going to ask every single female on, on the podcast because I want to be able to build a, a think tank, if you like, around it mm-hmm. um, and, and, and work out ways that we can do it. Um, okay, so... Talk to me a little bit about nonviolent communication because um, that's something that you are quite an advocate of. Um, and I know you did a podcast about it quite not too long ago. Um, but can you just sort of talk to me a little bit about nonviolent communication and how that um, benefits your financial advice process? So, yeah, nonviolent communication is a way to help people form connections with each other. Mm-hmm. And the assumption is that. Everything that we do is in service of our beautiful life-enriching needs, needs yep. that we all have in common that are universal, needs like love or, you know, food or peace or fun or contribution. And um, one of the important things that I've taken in from nonviolent communication that helps me with my work is to be non-judgmental mm-hmm. as much as possible. Um, I don't judge, I really don't judge clients if they cry or if they have like anger towards an ex-partner or, you know, like you you get really comfortable with the range of human emotions and you you also become a better listener because you're listening differently. There's a particular way of listening in NVC where you listen for feelings and needs. And yeah, it's important to listen to someone. But it's, sometimes, it's also important to be able to relay back to them what you heard mm. so that they feel heard. Mm-hmm. And when I can do that with a client and do it with uh, accuracy, the feeling of connection that you have is just amazing. The client yeah. really feels like, oh, you've got me, you've heard me, you've, you've, you know, you, you, you are listening to what's important to me. Yeah. Okay. And so it helps you build better, stronger relationships. And is relationships what it's all about, being a financial planner? It's a very large part of what it's about, yes. I think eventually over time, clients become like your family. You get to mm. really know them. You're talking about something very intimate and personal, like their life and their money and, you know, where they're going to buy a house, how they're going to raise their kids, um, how they're going to give their money to their kids. Mm. So many very personal things that you, you, get, you get really close to. Like a financial, financial counsellor almost, isn't it? Yeah, it, I mean, if if the client wants to go there also, because yeah. it is a professional relationship and some clients are more friendly than others. So, yeah. you know, they they decide the boundaries. Yeah. Uh, some clients would like to meet for lunch and, and just talk about non-financial advisory things. And that's quite fun, too. Yeah. And then some clients are very, like, to the point and they want to just talk about their portfolio and be done very quickly. Yeah. When we spoke briefly about marketing earlier, and we're talking about clients now, what, what are the... What's the, obviously finding clients as a financial advisor can be quite difficult, especially Mm. when you're self-employed. And if you're not taking clients with you from a bank, for example, those relationships, and some people don't particularly want to do that because they don't want tanks on their lawns and all sorts of stuff. Mm -hmm. So what would your advice be to somebody who starts out as a financial advisor, self-employed, blank slate, 
what would your advice be to go out there to win clients? Because we need to be paid, don't you? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, find your niche. Okay. Find what interests you. And stick with your values, you know, stick with what's important to you. So find your niche and stick with your values and what's important to mm-hmm. you. And then... And read lots of books on marketing by Seth Godin. Or, Seth you know, Godin, yeah. I did. I did his online course called The Marketing Seminar. Okay. It's really good. So would you, would you say from a training, so from being self, so being employed to self-employed, so yeah, let's talk about that. And what, what are the key things that you've, so training or, or books or things that you would recommend to somebody to get stuck into to, to, to sort of enhance their experience? I think nothing will push you faster towards self-improvement books than starting your own business because you realize that there are so many areas of um, business that you don't know about if yeah. you've come from an employed role you never had to think about where your clients are coming from somebody probably fed them to you yeah. you never had to worry about marketing or your printer breaking down or IT and things like that so it can be a huge learning curve yeah. um, I think having a blog or having your voice and having a way to get your voice out to your audience is important Okay. I think if I was looking for a service I, I generally want to know, you know, who is this person? What does the website look like? If the website looks like it was built in the 1970s and hasn't been updated for many months, yeah. and the last blog was written six months ago, I wouldn't, you know, like it has to be relatable also. The content has to be interesting. Yeah. yeah. So focus your, so f- you're, you're a firm believer that if you focus some energy on marketing as well as in your marketing and your personal brand, as well as going out and doing traditional methods, perhaps such as networking events or, or whatever, that that's going to enhance your, your business? I found networking events to be rubbish okay. and hasn't worked for me. Okay. I haven't found, like, I haven't forged any relationships with accountants. No. So those okay. sort of traditional things that work for most advisors yeah. that already established didn't work out for me. Okay. I find that I often will get people referring me to people on Twitter yeah. sometimes uh, for example, once uh, somebody on Twitter asked, do you know anyone like a childless IFA? And I happened to be childless. Okay. And so somebody referred me and I got like a whole load of business because she had this group of women that were childless that right. needed okay. a financial advisor and wanted somebody relatable. Okay. So, you know, so, so just forging relationships online because I think when people use social media, uh, sometimes they use it in a way where they want to promote themselves, but it's also about interacting with other people. And yep. and if you have a good connection, meeting that person offline. Yeah. And so, you know, like using it like, like a normal. <laughs> yeah. Forging relationships. Yeah. Okay. But, but, yeah. I, I totally get it. And what about LinkedIn? Do you get much out of LinkedIn? Do you use that? I, I don't have much. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just. Lots of financial advisors don't use LinkedIn. Yeah. It's like so much business is to, to be had on LinkedIn. It's unreal. Right. I should open yeah. a LinkedIn workshop. I make yeah. a fortune out of LinkedIn. Yeah. I would happily sit down with a load of financial advisors and talk to them how, how LinkedIn works. And how, yeah. I've got somebody called the LinkedIn lady and she's, um, she uh, is a lead generator for financial advisors. And what she does is will ghost your profile for you, right. get you out there, get you seen by people, create content and put it out, but also directly target people within your niche. Mm. So whilst you're not doing it yourself, you're out doing your, your job. Mm-hmm. She'll do that for you. Mm-hmm. She's got a huge success rate, massive success rate. Mm. Um, that's a hands-on approach to, 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 to doing it as opposed to like, I'm going to create an inbound marketing strategy via Google job ads or, you know, mm. Google um, AdWords or Facebook marketing campaigns. Have you ever done anything like that, that kind of marketing? Or have you not touched that paid advertising? I haven't touched that. No. It's an area that, again, not many financial advisors do, um, but 
there's a huge amount of business to be had from it, but mm. it's confidence and it's money up front. Mm. And so people kind of need to be, again, running that type of marketing for your business is a full-time job. Yeah. So you've got to kind of spin a few plates and it's good that, that, that two plan can do part of your marketing for you and everything like that, you know, and I mean, that's the benefit sometimes of being underneath a network as opposed to being directly authorized and having to wear a million and one hats. Yeah. So yeah. So what does the future hold for Cleona? What's happening over the next year? What have you got, what have you got to be excited about? Uh, I I don't think so much about the future. <laughs> I'm very. Um, what are you doing today? I'm very. Yeah. <laughs> I I hope I will you know continue to yeah. run my business yeah and continue to have clients that I enjoy working with yeah I'm pretty much at pretty near full capacity right now so I'm really just growing my client book through referrals and things like that but yeah just just want to be happy and peaceful and. You know? Live your life. Yeah, live my life. And you feel the lifestyle of being a self-employed financial advisor. Yeah, I highly recommend going working for yourself. I think yeah. it's just uh, if somebody paid me like five times as much money to go and work in a job, I wouldn't do it Amazing. because I value my freedom and I value my ability to say, I don't want to work with that kind of a client. I don't want to do this kind of a business. And you can't call those kind of shots when you work for someone else. No, you can't. Mm. Absolutely. What about hiring people? Have you got that in your mind? Do you want to build a business or are you happy on just doing it yourself? You said they're at capacity right now, aren't you? Yeah, I think, I think that would stress me out. So I, th- I think I'm really happy where I am. Yeah. And I don't want to necessarily change the formula unless, you know, something big shifts in my life. But my husband also earns well. We have enough for, for our needs, you know, so... It's like I'd rather, if I have spare time, I'd rather do something interesting and valuable rather than, you know, like keep working, work, yeah. I think that's great. Yeah. I think it's great. Thank you so much for your time today, Cleona. I really appreciate talking to you. Okay. And um, sharing your experiences and your history of working in financial advice and your advice. A real pleasure. Thank you so much, Sam. No worries. Thanks for your time.